Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue our study through Ephesians. We're going to continue uh, the next few verses in chapter 4. And while you're turning there, uh, two quick reminders or two quick announcements. Uh, After our third service today, we mentioned this last week, we are uh, inviting you, if you're interested or able to make the commitment, to come to a a very quick meeting where we're trying to form some teams to... um, be committed to praying for, at the beginning, two groups, uh, our elders and our staff and all of their uh, family members, their households. And we're asking uh, for the commitment to be for 365 days, and you'll pray every single day for every person by name uh, on these lists, these two teams. And we'll send out updates and just say, hey, here's two things we're asking you to pray over every person on the list, And then here's what God's been doing. We um, really feel as we enter into what is typically a busy time of the year, but more importantly, uh, just what God's been doing in our church family, uh, we need um, people covered in prayer. And so we have other prayer teams just to, so it doesn't sound like we're asking just for, that pray for our church. They meet weekly, they pray for everybody, but we're asking for the specifics Uh, for these two groups. If you're interested or capable or able, uh, if you would just stay after third service. If for some reason you just can't, just come talk to me uh, after service and we'll we'll get you the information. So second thing is this, and hold your applause just for a second. We had quite a bit uh, happen in the life of our church this week. We had four baptisms. So we had Christian and Atticus Cossack were baptized in the Christ. Again, hold on. Um, And uh, that's their dad, Andrew. Really cool. Um, Second picture here is Parker Williams. He was baptized into Christ as well. He's a freshman in high school. And then the third picture uh, is Gemma Campano. Now, here's, here's what we're doing. You guys couldn't be there at the actual baptism. And the Cossack boys go to first service. And first service hadn't had a chance to celebrate the way you guys have when we have these baptisms. And we want, the, the scriptures say that there's a party in heaven and we told these uh, young people in particular, hey, we're going we're gonna to celebrate together. And you've done that with us before, and I want to do it again. First service got loud, and I just want you to know that. Uh, Doug's in the back. Doug was at first service, and uh, they got loud. And so, like all kidding aside, I, I want to celebrate because this is the most important decision that these kids in these pictures will ever make. And we want to celebrate with them as their church family, okay? So on the count of three, Gemma's right here. Uh, I told him I wouldn't point him out too much, but she's sitting right there. Uh, And we're going to celebrate with Gemma here in this service, okay? We're going to celebrate the decision that Gemma made on three. Are you ready? One, two, three. Yeah! That never gets old. I love, we're going to keep doing that. That's our thing now, okay? All right. Uh, let's pray together and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you so much to join in the chorus of heaven, to celebrate the decisions that these young people made. Oh, what an incredible, incredible feeling. And I love this church family for celebrating that with us. Fathers, we turn our attention and really our, our minds and our affection to your word. I pray that you would speak clearly to us. God, we're here to humble ourselves under the authority of your word and ask that it would be clear to us today. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know that if you're sitting or standing in a dark room, and some of you are like, I'm out, I'm already scared, don't do it. Uh, It can get frustrating because you're not sure what to do and where to go. And there's a few different ways to get yourself 
away from a dark room, if you're in a dark room. You can have a friend come in with a flashlight. And that friend could come in with the greatest of intentions and flash the light right in your face, right? Thinking, hey, I'll get you out of here, this dark room, now you can see. And they flash the light in your face, probably meaning to help you, but it's not helpful at all. It just blinds you, right? It's like overwhelming to you. And rather than helping you take a step forward to get out, it causes you actually to step back. And for the next seven or eight seconds, you're just trying to gather yourself, maybe longer, like seven or eight minutes, because all you can do is see spots around the room. And you're not kind of sure what to do. And your friend may have meant well, but they weren't helpful at all. Now, this friend, they didn't create the light. They didn't invent it. They actually don't even power it. They simply hold the light. And they held it in a way that wasn't helpful. And rather than being helpful, they held it in a way that actually caused you to step back and t- instead of taking a step forward. They, they didn't change the nature or the purpose of the light, but they just didn't use it the way that it was intended to be used. But if they come into that same dark room where you're struggling to see where to go and what to do, and they shine it instead on your feet and guide you out, now rather than causing you to step back and see spots all around the room, now you know what's in front of you and what obstacles you need to get around and how to guide you from that dark room toward the light. Again, they didn't do anything to create that light. They didn't invent it. They didn't power it even. They simply held the light, and they held it in such a way that it was helpful for you to get from the darkness and into the light. Many of you know exactly where I'm going with this. We currently live in a world where our culture is very loud. And in order to be heard, whether you have conviction on what you believe or not, you you have to display anger, if not full-on hatred. I sat with somebody two different times, actually, this week and had a cup of coffee with somebody, and we discussed this. And and just being transparent with you, we were discussing some political things, but not political policies as much as just the state of politics and the the current culture that we live in. And my uh, observation was, I'm really hungry. I'm really desiring to see a a candidate in whatever level of politics you want to talk about come along who is intelligent and and witty and all of that, but also uh, kind has humility and self-control, the ability to go after an idea and debate that idea without demonizing the person who has the idea. And in both settings, both cups of coffee, the response was fine, but it was this. They'd never be heard. They'd never get a platform. They'd never be noticed. Because in our culture, if you want to display your idea, no matter how much you believe, you have to shine that light in their face. You have to display hatred. You have to get their attention. You have to shock everybody. And if you come in with an intelligence that has any kind of humility attached to it, you'll never be heard by anybody, as much as that would be good. Now, there's room for disagreement with that. I get it. But I think most of us would agree that the tone of rhetoric and conversation of communication in our culture is anything but warm or welcoming or guiding, right? It feels oftentimes that whatever truth, whether you can fill in the blank, the truth that you're discussing, whether it is political or cultural or worldview or, or even to do with your faith and differences in beliefs but among Christians, it becomes this shine the light in their face and let them know that they're wrong. Let them know that they're standing in the dark. Who cares if it helps them get them out? You just need to let them know where they're at. And it becomes pretty difficult. Even when we agree with somebody, even when we recognize the validity of that light that they're holding, it's hard to follow because we've been just stepping back, seeing spots everywhere. Sadly, this has been the experience of many people when it comes to the church. See, we have the light, and we believe that we're right. I believe with all my heart that we're right about this truth, 
in Jesus. But the question is, is the way that we're communicating that truth, the way that we're shining that light, is it, is it helpful or harmful? Is it hurting more or helping people do one of two things? One, take that initial step to come to know who Jesus is, someone who's been in the dark long enough to recognize, man, that light is something I've never seen, but I want that. Or for our purposes today, is it harmful or helpful in helping them take another step toward that light in their Christian maturity? That's the difficult thing. You see, as followers of Jesus, we're called to be people of grace and truth. Truth and grace. Not halfway grace, halfway truth. Not grace on one day and then on Wednesdays we can just do all truth. All grace, all truth, all the time. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, the word that I'm drawn to to describe that is an apprentice. If you apprentice your life under Jesus, then you have agreed to hold the light the way he held the light. That's what you've signed up for. You've agreed to communicate truth the way he does. Why? Because you're supposed to look like him. Kevin DeYoung's a professor and a writer, and he makes the observation that because of our personality and upbringing, a whole lot of us, a whole bunch of us, and all kinds of other factors, most of us are drawn toward either being people of truth or people of grace. We're just based on what we've been through in our lives. Grace people, they're pretty pleasant to be around. They don't rock the boat too much. Many of you have that demeanor, and you're like, yeah, I don't rock the boat too much. They cut us a lot of slack. They're easygoing. They accept us for who we are. They make no demands of us or on us. They're welcoming, and they're warm. But without truth, grace really isn't grace. It's just being nice. And being nice and affirming is far different than being filled with truth and grace. See, grace people, without truth, they're pleasant to be around, but we wonder if they actually like us. Like, do you actually like me, or are you just trying to be liked? Do you just need to be affirmed yourself? And you begin to wonder, like, I don't know that you actually enjoy being around me. They're tolerant, but they oftentimes don't know the difference between right and wrong, and they don't know how to take a stand for anything. Grace people can be cowardly or passive at best. They oftentimes refuse to make tough decisions in life, they demand nothing from us, so they get nothing in return from us. They accept us for who we are, but they never help us become who we're supposed to become. And then there's truth people. You see, truth people, they're easy to admire. We look up to them because they stand for something. They have convictions. They set standards, and they have no problem holding other people to live up to the standards that they set. They can be intelligent and well-spoken, but without grace, telling the truth simply becomes an excuse to be a bully. Truth people without grace, they're loyal to their cause, but they make you wonder if they're actually loyal to you. And sure, they inspire you to make good decisions, but does that inspiration feel more like intimidation? They want us to be better, but they don't allow for mistakes. They're quick to judge you and judge other people. And sure, they make difficult decisions in life, but man, they can make life difficult for us. It's a hard thing. You see, they inspire us with their courage, but they push us away with their intimidation. All cards on the table, because of my upbringing, because of my experiences, I lean more toward truth than grace. And I've had in my discipleship, my apprenticeship to Jesus, I've had to learn that truth without grace doesn't work either. See, if you're a grace person, you're more concerned about being loved and accepted. That's like one of the top concerns that you have. And if you're a truth person, your top priority is I want to be right. And I want you to know that I'm right. I'll shine this light right in your face as long as you know that I'm the one holding it. Both have their good, both have their bad, but when you separate them, they become difficult. You see, there's something wrong if everybody loves you. Like, 
really? There's something wrong if everybody always loves you. And there's equally something wrong if nobody loves you because you're too difficult to be around. So what about Jesus? When we look at, look at our leader, look at Jesus. You see, Jesus was all grace, right? He welcomed sinners and tax collectors and ate with them. He had compassion on the crowds when they were hungry and they were far from home. He healed paralyzed people and blind people. He stopped in the midst of his busy schedule and would give people the time that they needed to look into his eyes and see that very grace that he stood for. Never held a grudge, always made people feel welcomed. You see, but Jesus was also all truth. He called out the religious leaders of his day for being liars and hypocrites, created standards and held his followers to those standards to the point where he told his followers, every day you pick up your cross and you follow me. And he demanded everything from his disciples, even their lives. See, Jesus was all grace and all truth. He came from the Father full of grace and truth. All grace, all truth, all the time. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't come simply to tell us about truth in a graceful way. He came to continually provide both of these things to us as we follow him. And one of the most beautiful lessons I've learned in following Jesus is my continual, perpetual need to experience grace and truth from him as I grow. I can never get enough of it. Right? We need to be able to come to him and hear his words anew. Just think about the week that you just had. If it's anything like my week at all, you had at least one moment where you needed because you made a foolish choice, said a foolish thing. You made somebody feel bad. You had that regret that seeps in on all of us, and you just needed to experience a little bit of grace. Now think about these words that you can come back to over and over again from Jesus in the message translation. Here's what he asks. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. And I love this. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. See, I need this all the time because all the time I forget it. All the time I forget as the enemy whispers into my ear that choice you made, that thing you said, the way you made that person feel, that's defining you now, Rob. That's who you are. And I need a reminder that no matter how much I mess up, how much of a wreck I make my life, I have a father who's not looking on the horizon to judge me, but looking on the horizon to see me coming so he can run to me and embrace me with his grace. I don't know about you, but I need that all the time, not just once. But I also need truth. I need the truth that Jesus, in order to set me free, Jesus said that himself. He said in John chapter 8, verse 32, you will know the truth, and it's that truth that will set you free from being in bondage to whatever it is that's been holding you back. Just a few verses later, look at how he explains it. I'll tell you the truth, the same truth, same word that he just used. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin, but if the Son sets you free, then you're free indeed. We need somebody with the tenderness and love of Jesus to tell us the truth that we're not okay, that we don't have it all figured out, that we're not always have to be the expert or the smartest person in the room, that my mistakes don't define me. And I need them to come with that tenderness and grace to tell me the truth about how to transform my life and become better. We need truth. We need grace. We need Jesus. This is the current that runs underneath the messaging in Ephesians 4. If you remember the Apostle Paul, as he's got to Ephesians 4, writing to this church in this dog-eat-dog culture in Ephesus. 
Everybody first. I mean, that Roman Empire influence. You know, the climb the social ladder, that very phrasing originated in Rome. Just this idea that you put your own interests above the interests of everybody else, and you need to come first. And the people are worn out. And Paul begins to tell them the purpose of the gathering of the church. He says, you've got one God. Not all these other gods vying for your attention. One God, one faith, one hope, one baptism. And from that understanding, when you become a Christian, God gives you the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You don't need to continually welcome him to show up because he's always there. You need to recognize his presence and his power in your life. As the Holy Spirit's there, he gives gifts, is what the text tells us. And those gifts have a purpose. They're never just to make you a better version of you, though they'll do that. But that's not the point. The point is that he gives gifts for the building up of his church. So you've been given a gift, and that gift allows you to serve other people in a way that they experience grace and truth. Jesus being the cornerstone, when we all use our gifts, builds up the church toward what he says is spiritual maturity. It's growing up. And he's going to get pretty specific about how we can do that in the next verses. If you would stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to continue our reading in Ephesians 4. I know it's like, man, oh, it's just getting comfortable, dozing off. Keeps you awake. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is God's word. You can be seated. So he starts out kind of displaying the negative aspects of our refusal to mature and then telling us how we can mature. He says, when the church doesn't use their gifts for the benefit of serving and building one another up, then what you have is a church full of little kids that never grow up. And what happens is the church will gather together, but nobody's wanting to actually use their gifts for the benefit of others. We're pretty selfish with those gifts. And you have a bunch of little children in church who then walk out and the culture eats them alive. Different worldviews, ideologies, philosophies begin to influence the way that they think. And they just jump from one belief system to the next belief system that makes them feel good, like little children do, tossed to and from. Like, whatever makes me feel good is what I'm going to do. He says, but when you use your gifts the right way, it matures the church in a way that they're not tossed around. But everybody has to mature. Everybody has to grow spiritually. This lesson's become pretty prevalent for me in the last few weeks. I'm going to make a few of you uh, probably a little bit upset because many of you uh, this, in the last two weeks have dropped off your children in college, maybe for the first time. Man, that's hard, right? Where did the time go? And I used to hear that and think, as a pastor, I need to be sympathetic to it. But my kids are young, and I'm not feeling it. Until this year, my son went into high school. Now, because he's the first, he's the example. Whatever kid is the oldest is the one that's going to become the example. And what I'm about to say is, when, when my son, my oldest, went to high school, I was not prepared for every part of that. I, I consider myself a pretty intentional dad. I, I would describe it to you this way. I don't, apart from being my wife's husband, there's nothing that brings me more joy. I just really like my kids a lot. And so I enjoy when our family's together and we do things. And when he started high school and we started having conversations about what he was learning and experiencing just in these first few weeks, an emotional timer started inside of me that I wasn't ready for. 
It's like a countdown. And I wasn't prepared for it. I just didn't, no one ever told me about that. But all of a sudden it became, oh no, we've got less than four years. Like, oh man. And the reason I think that timer went off inside of me was because I started to have conversations with him and I realized there's going to be some lessons very soon that you need to learn that I can't learn for you anymore. And there's going to be some experiences you need to have that I need to step back and allow you to have. And I can't protect you is too strong of a word, I think, but I can't do this for you like I want to. I have to let you. Now, I have to have wisdom and discernment in that about when to step in and when not. But he has to mature. And allowing him to mature is really hard because I want to do it for him. And the motivation for that is I love him so much. But that's not the way I need to love him. I need to let him mature. What Paul's saying here is this. You have gifts. God's given you. You have this truth. And the truth is you walk in and you can choose to just kind of make it all about you. Look at me. I know everything. Or you can shine it at their feet and say, hey, I got this truth. I didn't create this truth. I don't like earn it. I don't deserve it. But like God in his grace, I led somebody else into the dark room and they had the flashlight. And now I have a flashlight. I know the truth. I want to guide you out of here and help you mature, but you have to take the step. And when we come to obstacles, I'm going to help you move those obstacles to get you out of this dark room. But you have to take those steps and you have to get around those obstacles and I can't do it for you. You have to mature. And Paul then in verse 15 tells us how best we can do that in people's lives. He says this, if you'll speak the truth in love, then maturity will take place and the church will grow healthy and there'll be depth. Apply this to any part of your life. He says, speak the truth in love. And so, yes, we must speak truth into people's lives. Like, hey, there's an obstacle coming that I'm afraid that if you keep stepping in this room, you're going to trip over this thing, man. It's not going to be fun. It's going to hurt. And I can see it because of the light here. So let me help you get around. I need to tell you the truth. Don't go that way. If you go that way, it's going to hurt. And then they might go that way and they fall down. And the truth is, I need to help you get back up. And he says, you have to speak the truth. Part of people's maturity requires the courage that we must have in our maturity to speak truth into their life. It's just a part of it, which tells me something. I can listen to how you talk and I can gauge the level of your spiritual maturity. Doesn't mean I have to judge it. Doesn't mean I have to form an opinion, but I can tell where you're at. So if I hear you talk about you, do you, when you talk about you, is it all about you? Are you what one person said? Are you just a me monster? Me, 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 I, 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 it's all about me. I, I, I. And every time I talk to you, it's exhausting. And, or maybe every time I talk to you, I could tell you all the details of your life and you couldn't even tell me my wife's name because it's always about talking. Talk, talk, talk. Here we go. I can tell where you're at. Now, you might just be in a bad season and that's fine, but you can kind of tell where somebody's at. Or is it every time I hear you talk, are you bad-mouthing somebody else? Are you gossiping? Slandering their name to make your name feel better. Slandering their reputation so that you can walk with a little bit more pep in your step. I can listen to that and think, okay, I can kind of tell where you're at spiritually speaking. Which makes this text even more fascinating because the word that the Apostle Paul uses in the original language there for speak the truth in love isn't just talking about the words we speak, though it is absolutely including the words we speak. It's actually a deeper concept. It's this idea of whole life obedience. Meaning it's not just what you say, it's also what you do. So what he's saying is when you speak the truth in love, you don't just talk the talk, you walk the walk. You don't just tell me what I need to do, you show me what I need to do. You make decisions that show me that your lifestyle, the choices you make, the life you're living, the disciplines that you've incorporated into your life will show me 
the level of spiritual maturity that you have as you're guiding other people toward that too. One scholar called this truthing. Truthing is this concept that doing the truth is the idea, not merely speaking it, but you can't do the truth without also speaking it. They work hand in hand. Like I, I can't just talk about the light. I actually have to walk in the light. I actually have to know the truth and live the truth that I'm trying to tell you to live. It's all encompassing. Paul's saying that an understanding is more than simply knowing. You can't just know it. You actually have to live it authentically. And that truth must be completely covered in love. So the motivation for what you say and what you do matters to God. Alistair Begg's a really well-known preacher in Cleveland, Ohio, um, and he's on the radio. You've probably heard of his books. He summarized this idea of truth and grace well. He said it this way, truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love, and love becomes soft if it's not strengthened by truth. Man, you got to do both. And the people that God has placed you around are depending on you maturing in both so they can take their next steps in maturity. Notice how Paul says this in verse 16. Look what he says. It's from him, the whole body, joined and held together by what? By every supporting ligament. That means every single one of us has a role to play. And if we will support as a ligament the growth and maturity of the body of Christ, the body grows and builds itself up in love when each part does its work. I don't know if you know, like if, you, if you're a fan of sports, you'll know like when you hear something pretty detrimental on, on SportsCenter, right? Your favorite player, my, my daughter, Abby, loves basketball. And one of her favorite players is Paige Becker. She plays at UConn, University of Connecticut. She's a great basketball player and she likes watching highlights. And, and so we're, we're getting ready and we're like, they're going to come to Butler uh, for what looks like an exhibition game every time, right? Because UConn and Butler don't line up. We're like, oh, we're excited. We're going to buy our tickets. And then right across the front, the ESPN's front breaking news like three weeks ago, Paige Beckers tears her ACL. She's out for the season. And you're like, oh. Because you know that when that ligament tears, that body can't do what it's supposed to do. The same thing is true in the church. When one ligament, one supporting ligament decides that their maturity is all about them, and they decide, I'm just going to speak the truth, forget the love part. Or I'm just going to be passive, and I'm not going to speak the truth. And when that ligament goes bad, the whole body is impacted by that. This isn't about one person using their gifts up on a stage so you can watch. It's about every single Christian has a role to play. But it can feel overwhelming, right? Like, does my role really matter? I don't know if you've ever been to the Magic Kingdom in Disney World around 9.30 in the morning. I don't think it'll be in heaven, but it'll be somewhere else. <laughs> But when I'm there and those gates are opened and those thousands and thousands and thousands of people are running all around you, one of the thoughts that crossed my mind was this. How do you make a difference in a world like this? This many people. It was like the first time you physically feel the population of the world. And you're like, does it really matter what I do? Have you ever felt that? Does it matter? Like, I can try all this effort, spiritual maturity, speak the truth in love. I'll do my part. I'll love the people around me. But, like, really, is it even making the difference? Had coffee with someone this week, and they reminded me of a story as we talked through some of that. They reminded me of a story about Mother Teresa. And there was another person serving the poor who really wanted some time with Mother Teresa and so decided to just take a chance and go and try to meet with her. Usually, if, if you know much of Mother Teresa, she was a pretty busy lady when she was alive and she had people lined up to meet her and see her work there in Calcutta. And so this person decided, I want to come and just talk to her because I'm frustrated. And sure enough, she shows up and there's nobody scheduled to meet with her. And she gets to sit down with Mother Teresa. 
And she vents her frustration that I'm working so hard. I'm trying to help the poor. I'm trying to do my part. But it just feels like I'm not even a drop in the ocean. It's like I'm not really making a big difference. And here's what Mother Teresa said. She said this, we ourselves feel that what we're doing is just a drop in the ocean. But if the drop was not in the ocean, I think the ocean would be less because of the missing drop. They can feel like you just being a ligament in a body isn't significant. But in God's economy, the body needs you, needs your gifts. Look, the kingdom will still be the kingdom. The ocean will go on without one drop, sure. But the ocean is better with the drop. And the kingdom's better when you're maturing because you're going to help other people mature too. Let me close just two, two quick things. First thing is this. We all need to speak the truth and have someone speak the truth to us. This passage is not simply about you speaking truth in other people's lives. It's also about you having the humility to receive the truth that someone else might speak into your life based on God's word. Think about it this way. If, you ever, if it's ever fascinating to you, I'm, I'm sorry I'm on sports big time this week, but it'll be all right. How professional athletes, like professional high-level athletes still need coaches, except LeBron, right? He doesn't need a coach. He is a coach, right? I just need a guy in a suit on the bench, Okay. But, but what about like all these athletes? I think about baseball. Think about a pitcher in baseball. Here's a guy who can throw, you know, 95 mile an hour over the inside corner, the outside corner of this tiny little rubber plate 66 feet away from him with unbelievable precision, faking out a guy who's trying his best to hit that ball. And yet this guy needs a coach. And more often than not, that coach is an older guy with a pot belly and needs glasses to even see 66 feet at where that plate is. And yet this is the guy who's telling this pitcher who can throw it with all this. And yet if you ask the pitcher, he would say, I could not do what I do without this guy speaking truth. He needs to critique me. He needs to give me pointers. He needs to tell me where I'm supposed to improve. And the same thing is true spiritually. We need people in our lives to come along and coach and disciple us who are willing in love to speak the truth to us where we need to get better. But here's the next point, right? We all need to hear and speak that truth in love. If we're ever going to see or experience the transformation that that truth can do. If all you do is walk around with a flashlight and shine it in people's face to let them know that you know the truth, you do nobody any good. But if instead you walk in and show them the light at their feet and guide them out, you make all the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. Aren't you glad that God didn't simply shine a bright light in our faces But instead, he sent Jesus to be the light of the world, to come into the dark world and show us how to get out of the dark world, to be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, to guide us out of this dark, miserable world as the light showing us the way. And if you're one of his followers, you're called to do the same thing. Don't hold the light in people's eyes. Hold it at their feet and guide them out of the darkness and into the light. Let's pray. God, we do live in a fast-paced, tension-filled, oftentimes hate-filled world where communication is so difficult and truth feels like it is just something people use to bully other people. And yet there's this light that has shined into this dark world. It's the light of Jesus. And God, somebody came into our lives into the darkness of our world, holding that flashlight. And they spoke the truth and love to us, and they guided us into that light. And God, as Paul says here, now we have these gifts. We get to turn around and walk right back into a dark world with the light, using our gifts for the betterment of other people, to guide them from the dark and into the light. 
But God, we can't do that without your help. And so would you give us strength and courage and compassion and kindness. Give us patience to not expect change overnight, but to be willing to just keep shining the light and keep loving people. We ask you for this help in Jesus' name.